Chapter 2 Some Basic Concepts and Definitions Section 1 Economic Value If something is to have economic value, it must be relatively scarce and in demand, and economic good is a scarce resource for which people are prepared to exchange other scarce resources in order to obtain. If a good is in abundant supply, it is worth nothing economically. It is free. This is so even if it is vital to life, for example, air. Of course, it might be argued that in some places, air is to some extent an economic good, since people do pay for it. They pay to live away from pollution in a clean, healthy environment where property is more expensive than in polluted areas. But in this case, they do so because clean air is no longer available in such abundant supply in polluted areas. It has become scarcer, and therefore it can be bought for a price. People will pay higher prices for houses that are situated in areas where there is a cleaner atmosphere than those situated in polluted industrial areas, other things being equal. In saying that some things are worth nothing economically, we are not making a statement about these things in ultimate terms. We are not making an ontological statement about their worth. That is to say, we are not asserting the value of their being or existence. Seawater, for instance, is valuable ontologically speaking. It is vital to our very existence. Without it, life as we know it would cease. It is thus of inestimable value from an ontological point of view. In other words, it is objectively valuable. But it is not normally of economic value. It cannot normally be exchanged for other goods in the market because it is not scarce. We must therefore distinguish between ontological or objective value and economic value. Economic value is based upon one's valuation of a good's worth in a specific situation and for a specific end, viz. exchange for other goods in a market. Economic value is a subjective phenomenon. That is, it depends on an individual's estimation of a good's worth in exchange for other goods. It arises out of one's personal assessment of a good's ability to satisfy or lead to the satisfaction of a want for which one is prepared to exchange other scarce goods. Hence, one must ask the question, is it worth my while to part with a piece of gold for a bucket of seawater? Both are ontologically valuable, both are made by God and are good, but seawater is not normally of any economic value. Section 2. Markets In a market economy, people exchange economic goods to their mutual advantage. Each party to the exchange values what he receives from the other more than what he exchanges for it. Both come off the better. If a man exchanges a pig for a cow, it is because he values the cow more than the pig, and vice versa. In such a case, the exchange value of a pig equals that of a cow, though, from the point of view of the parties involved, each gets something he values more. This demonstrates how economic value is a subjective phenomenon. The effect of everyone's exchanging goods in a market, however, is to establish exchange rates, that is, market prices. Thus, a market is, quote, a group of buyers and sellers who are in sufficiently close contact for the transactions between any pair of them to affect the terms on which the others buy or sell, end quote. In the free market, suppliers compete with suppliers and buyers compete with buyers. 
suppliers do not compete with buyers. Theoretically, as this process of competition and exchange takes place, prices stabilize at a level where supply is equal to demand, and the whole supply of a good is purchased by those wishing to acquire it at that price. Economists call this equilibrium price. Although in most markets, the existence of equilibrium is a hypothetical situation that will never be attained perfectly, there is a tendency towards equilibrium in the free market, other things being equal. The free market works to the mutual advantage of all. It is a mechanism for harmonising interests. Although it is true that there is a conflict of interests between suppliers and consumers, because suppliers naturally want the highest price they can get for their goods, and consumers wish to acquire the goods at the lowest price possible, the market works to mitigate this conflict of interests. Competition for custom between suppliers reduces prices, which is to the advantage of the consumer, while the constant bidding of consumers against each other for goods raises prices, which is to the advantage of the supplier. The market order thus reduces the conflicts of interests between suppliers and consumers to the benefit of all. The concept of the market as a mechanism for harmonising economic interests, therefore, is not predicated on the idea that there is a natural harmony of interests between suppliers and consumers. There is not. Rather, there is a natural conflict of interests which the market mitigates so that each party benefits from the exchange. Both parties are forced to offer their goods at a rate of exchange that is to their mutual advantage. Far from creating opportunities for exploitation, therefore, as it is often thought, the free market order reduces exploitation by allowing competition to temper the interests of suppliers and consumers. It might be objected that the free market only works to harmonise interests between the supplier who gets the sale and the consumer who buys goods from him, but that it creates a disharmony of interests between suppliers who compete against each other for customers and also between consumers who bid against each other for the available supply of goods. This has led some to view the free market economy generally in a critical light and to assert that free markets are detrimental to the poorer classes in society, the rich being able to obtain all their needs via their market, while the poor are left without enough economic power to bid against the rich. It is therefore claimed that the market does not harmonise the interests of all, but only the interests of those suppliers who can dominate the market, forcing their weaker competitors out of business, and the wealthier members of society who can bid up prices. In other words, the free market order provides adequately for the wealthy, but creates a system in which the poor cannot escape their poverty. This analysis is faulty, however. It first, first, it fails to take account of the fact that all consumers are also suppliers in some market, whether for labour or goods, and all suppliers are consumers in some market. Thus, a market situation that is to the mutual advantage of supplier and consumer is advantageous to all. It is, in reality, a mechanism for harmonising the conflicting interests of all. Since all produce and sell something, and all buy and consume what others use, all benefit, ultimately. Second, the more demand there is for a good, that is, the more consumers bid against each other for the available supply of a good, the more entrepreneurs will be induced to find new ways of meeting that demand. The existence of mass demand, that is, of an increase of consumers bidding against each other for goods, creates the necessary conditions for mass production.
which leads to a greater supply of goods being made available at prices that more people can afford. A free market order is therefore to the advantage of all consumers, as consumers and all suppliers, as suppliers. Furthermore, the same conditions of mass demand provide more opportunities for new suppliers to enter the market, thereby creating more opportunities for employment, and this in turn leads to lower prices since a greater supply of goods is made available on the market. In a free market economy, therefore, production and distribution occur together. It is the failure to understand that production and distribution in a free market economy are complex interdependent processes taking place between all people at all times, and hence that the free market order is advantageous to all that has led to an economic analysis based on the idea that free markets are disadvantageous to all but the few who are able to exploit the rest of society economically. In this analysis, production and distribution are artificially abstracted from each other and from the reality of the conditions that prevail in the market economy. It is then assumed that production can be organised more efficiently and, quote, fairly, unquote, that is, in a way that can be of benefit to the poor as well as the wealthy, if it is separated from distribution. This is a fallacy, however. The false abstraction of these economic factors from the reality of the situation that prevails in a productive market economy distorts one understanding of how wealth is created. At the bottom of socialist economic theory, this kind of thinking is at work. When an economic system is organised around this fallacy, the result is the decline of productivity and decapitalization, and ultimately, the failure of economic activity based on the division of labour. Before this latter occurs, however, the system is abandoned and a de facto market economy takes its place, even where this is formally illegal. A good example of this last point was the Soviet Union, where black markets were common and even encouraged by some governments. Even formal allegiance to such a system has now been abandoned by some of the former Soviet nations. The free market economy, because it harmonises the interests of suppliers and consumers, and creates more opportunities for employment, maximises productivity and, consequently, works to the mutual advantage of all concerned. The only real alternative, ultimately, is subsistence living, a condition that is only too real for many in advanced socialist, communist and ex-Soviet states. Section 3. Money In the market economy, People buy goods and services by exchanging them for other goods and services. This can be done in two ways. A. Through barter, in which the actual goods to be sold are calculated in value against the goods to be bought. This is the commodity that is considered the most marketable good. That is, that is acceptable to the greatest number of people in exchange for the greatest and most varied number of goods. If a sheep fits this description, the medium of exchange will be a sheep. The use of a common medium of exchange facilitates economic activity by providing a widely accepted means of payment and a reliable means of economic calculation. It rationalises economic activity, in other words. A community's common medium of exchange is its form of money. Simply put, money is the most marketable good. Historically, certain goods became established more than others as common media of exchange because they have certain qualities that facilitate their use as such. 
there are four essential qualities that a good needs if it is to function effectively as money. It must be A. Scarce in comparison with other goods B. Easily portable C. Easily divisible and D. Durable, not easily perishable A good that possesses these four qualities is more likely to be used as a common medium of exchange. The two substances that have been most widely used as money throughout history excel in these qualities, gold and silver. In the last 150 years or so, gold has been established as the most suitable and most widely used of these two. Silver has been demonetized. One more thing needs to be said about the qualities of money. Money is essentially an economic good, not a political good. Gold is not an internationally accepted form of money because it is politically enforced. Indeed, many politicians would like to be rid of it as a form of money. Gold is a universally accepted standard because of its economic value. Although it may seem that this is no longer true, and that the value of modern currency is determined politically in relation to other politically manipulated currencies, it still remains true that, economically, gold is the de facto standard. The current situation in which the value of money is artificially manipulated by the authorities to meet their political exigencies is a transitory phenomenon. When political money fails, and it always does fail, eventually, gold will most likely be re-established as the de facto standard for monetary transactions. Because of its marketability, commodity money, for example, gold and silver, become a standard for measuring the value of goods generally. Once this happened, money took on a value that related to its function as a medium of exchange. That is to say, it became valuable for its use as a medium of exchange, as well as for its use as a commodity. But it must be remembered that the value imputed to money as a medium of exchange was not established independently of a particular medium's historic value as a good. If money has no value as a good, its basis as a medium of exchange has gone since its value as a medium of exchange rests on the fact that it is the most marketable good. Thus, modern fiat money is not, in the historical sense, money. It was referred to originally as fiduciary media, that is, claims to money, accepted merely on trust. Banknotes were originally promises to pay a certain amount of gold or silver, IOUs for money, not money in their own right. The fiduciary issue was the excess of notes issued by the Bank of England over and above its reserves. It functioned as money only because people believed it to be redeemable for gold. Similarly, coin that today functions as a medium of exchange but is of little value itself, materially worth less than its face value, is called, quote, token money, unquote, and not considered legal tender over a certain amount. This latter fact is inconsistent from a political point of view, but it is a tacit acknowledgement that political fiat money is not money in the economic sense. Unfortunately, money and its creation has been transformed considerably in modern Western societies as a result of state control of the monetary systems and all Western economies now operate on fiat standards. Fiat money is so-called because it is created out of paper by state decree. It has no value other than as state-enforced legal tender. Thus, we use the term hard money to mean what used to be called money, for example, gold and silver coins. The term money today means fiat money, 
money that exists because it is printed on paper or coined in base metals by the government or its agents. But modern fiat money is essentially a fraud and will last only as long as governments can cajole people or coerce them through legal tender laws into using it. Hard currency is a term used to mean a currency that is undervalued in international exchange. It's hardness being due to its trading strength over other currencies. It should not be confused with hard money as used here, which means metal or specie. Section 4. Profit. Profit is the difference between the selling price of a good and the cost of producing it. If it costs £5 to produce a particular good, taking into account all the production factors, for example, raw materials, production processes, capital depreciation, the cost of replacing the capital or part thereof consumed in its production, labour and management, salaries, marketing, transportation and implicit opportunity cost, and the good sells at £8, the profit is £3. If the cost of production rises above the price that people are prepared to pay for a good, it becomes uneconomic to produce. Since no profit can be made, no excess of income over expenditure, there can be no surplus that could then be put to further productive use. No matter how much labour, care and effort were to go into its production, its economic value would be less than the production costs involved in manufacturing it. To manufacture such a good would be an unproductive use of capital. Its production under such circumstances would not constitute the creation of wealth and would contribute instead to decapitalization. In other words, it would be a waste of scarce resources that are required for the production of other, more useful goods. It is thus profit, the production of a surplus of income over expenditure, that leads ultimately to capital accumulation and the creation of wealth. Without profit, there can be no growth economically and hence no increase in standards of living. If we want our standard of living to get better, we must increase our wealth. And this is only possible if we make a profit. Without profit, society would enter a period of decapitalization, that is, consumption of the wealth that society has already accumulated, saved, and that is needed to fund further production, economic growth. Hence, there would be a lowering of the standard of living and eventually shortages and poverty, as there was in the USSR. Ultimately, we should reach the archetypal, profitless mode of existence, subsistence living. Profit is, therefore, vital to economic growth and social betterment. If we want better health care, better housing, a better environment, better amenities, a better standard of living generally, we must make a profit. These things can only be produced by the creation of wealth, and without profit, this is impossible. Profit is vital to our economy and to our lives. The only alternative to an economy based on profit is subsistence living. Those who think profit is evil or incompatible with the Christian virtues should consider the plight of the poor populations of India, Africa, South America and other third world countries, especially those that have had least contact with Western societies and observe what subsistence living is all about. That is the alternative. The choice before us in terms of the economic organisation of a society is a simple one. Productivity and profit or stagnation and subsistence living with all that that implies. For example, poor health care, disease, bad housing, 
insufficient resources to cope with even the slightest emergencies, basically a hand-to-mouth existence. Without profit, there would be no way of helping others, since one's means would be sufficient only for oneself and one's immediate family. If Christians want to be in a position to help others, to provide charity, and we must assume that they do, since this is a command of Christ, they must make a profit. Even charity, therefore, which is a biblical requirement, necessitates an economy based on profit. Section 5. The Price Mechanism and Economic Calculation Prices perform an essential function in the economy. Without prices, economic calculation becomes impossible. The price mechanism provides three essential pieces of information. A. How much it costs to produce a good or supply a service. B. How much people are prepared to pay for it. And thus C. Whether the manufacture of a good or supply of a service is a productive use of capital. In other words, the price mechanism tells us whether the manufacture of a good constitutes the creation of wealth or the waste of scarce resources. This principle holds good for all production in all societies, including communist and socialist state-controlled economies. Socialist and communist economies are wasteful and less productive economies because they have corrupted the price mechanism, which provides manufacturers and service providers with information about how much goods and services are worth, that is, how much people are prepared to pay for them. And therefore, whether it is worth manufacturing and supplying such goods and services. Without the price mechanism, it is not possible to engage in rational economic calculation, and therefore it is not possible to maximise productivity. The result of the destruction or corruption of the price mechanism is that society engages in uneconomic and unproductive enterprises that lead to the decapitalization of society through the waste of scarce resources needed for the creation of wealth. Instead of the creation of wealth and prosperity through economic rationalisation, society enters a period of economic stagnation and increasing poverty. Witness the former Soviet nations, which are now abandoning their previous socialist economic strategies and attempting to promote a market economy. Yet, at the same time, they are seeking help from the West by asking for favoured trading terms, an anomaly few seem to recognise. This analysis of profit and the price mechanism and their role in the economy is based on an assessment of the economic value of goods and services offered for sale in the market. It does not presuppose that economic value is the only kind of value that people appreciate or impute to goods. One may wish to use one's wealth to create a picture that, due to its poor quality, is of no economic value whatsoever. One may derive great pleasure from doing this, and from admiring the fruits of one's efforts. The picture may be of great personal value to its creator. Similarly, an object may have little economic value, yet have great sentimental value. These kinds of value are just as valid as economic value, and no criticism or depreciation of such is here intended. But they are not relevant to an understanding of economics. We must distinguish between economic value, on the basis of which wealth is created, and other kinds of value that are not based on economic considerations. Section 6. Supply and Demand As we have seen, people compete against each other to obtain scarce goods that are in demand. 
The scarcer a good is, the higher its price will be. The less scarce it is, the lower its price will be. If a good is in short supply, those who wish to purchase it will bid against each other for it. The more plentiful a good is, the less people will bid against each other for it, and the more suppliers will compete against each other by reducing prices in order to obtain sales. Supply and demand for a good are thus regulated by the price mechanism. When the price mechanism is allowed to function properly, for example, without government or state interference, it will tend to establish an equilibrium between supply and demand. That is to say, at a given price, the whole supply of a certain good will be purchased by those who wish to acquire it. When supply rises above demand, prices will fall, since suppliers will compete with each other by offering lower prices, thereby attracting more customers and increasing demand. There will thus be a tendency for equilibrium between supply and demand to be re-established at a lower price. When supply falls below demand, prices will rise, since consumers will bid against each other for goods in short supply, thereby limiting the number of people who are prepared to pay the higher price. There will be a tendency for equilibrium between supply and demand to be re-established once again at a higher price. If the price of a good in short supply is kept artificially low by state regulation, for example, the result will be a shortage, since the supply will be exhausted before all those wanting to purchase the good at that price are able to obtain it, for example, meat in Soviet Russia. This may lead to economic stagnation due to the undervaluing and thus wasteful use of scarce resources needed for use in more essential or more productive industries. If the price is kept artificially high by cartels and trade agreements, state-imposed tariffs, union-imposed minimum wage agreements and closed shop industries, etc., the result will be a glut, since only a limited number of people wanting to purchase the good will be able to afford it. For example, diamonds, EEC food mountains, unemployed labour, etc., again leading to economic stagnation through the waste and underutilization of scarce resources needed for the creation of wealth. Section 7. Capital Suppose someone were shipwrecked and washed ashore on a desert island with no possessions or provisions. The task of merely surviving for such a person would be immensely difficult. His first priority would be to obtain food and shelter, a simple enough task for anyone living under normal conditions in a developed society. But on a desert island with nothing except perhaps the clothes in which he stood, this simple task would be a major hurdle to overcome. He would have to start from scratch. In other words, he would have no capital with which to work. His first job would be to obtain the material provisions that are vital for life, food and water. But even catching a fish or hunting an animal for food under such conditions would present immense problems. Suppose our castaway wished to eat some meat. First he has to catch it, a considerably difficult task without a fishing rod or a net of some kind. Perhaps most of his day would be taken up with trying to catch a fish for his first meal, and his success would most likely be very limited. But suppose he does catch a fish, he then has to prepare it for eating. A knife and a few matches would make his task much easier, since he would be able to cut and gut the fish and cook it. With a resource such as a knife, he would also be able much more easily to make a fishing rod or netting device. Without a knife, or any other such tool, he would be forced into a very primitive form of life, almost as basic as that of the animals. 
having to eat raw food caught with his bare hands. Of course, he would still have his most important resource, far more important than any material possessions, namely his human initiative and creativeness. It is these human qualities that enable man to excel above the animals and to use the material resources at his disposal so effectively. These qualities are part of the image of God in man, which sets him apart from every other creature. Nonetheless, without capital, resources such as tools or materials from which he can make tools, his task would be very difficult and his standard of living would be that of abject poverty. Even Robinson Crusoe lived a life of considerable ease compared with our castaway, since he had a vast amount of capital in the form of provisions from the ship with which to work. Let us assume, however, that our castaway has been able to make some kind of water retainer or bucket for storing rainwater, for drinking and a fishing rod. His life is now immeasurably easier since he can store water and food at least for a few days, thereby freeing up his time to create and develop other tools and collect further resources. He has now accumulated capital in the form of a fishing rod and a bucket, resources that will enable him to work more efficiently and productively, thereby helping him to progress toward a better standard of living. He may be able to spend time planting seeds for crops and herding any teamable animals together, such as goats for milking and sheep for wool and food. Each time he obtains some other useful tool or resource that increases the efficiency and productivity of his work, he capitalizes himself, that is, his stock of capital increases. Each new project he undertakes relies on the availability and productive use of the equipment and resources he has previously accumulated in order for it to succeed. These physical resources constitute capital, and the process of accumulating them is capitalization. It is this process of capitalization that makes civilization possible on the physical level. Of course, as we have seen, this process can only take place where there is the initiative and creativeness to utilize the available physical resources. The animal kingdom is not characterized by capital accumulation in the way that human society is generally. Capital is thus the result of the creative combination of two more basic factors, raw materials and labor. Suppose now that a second castaway is washed up on the island without possessions or provisions. He is immediately able to benefit from the capitalized form of living that the first castaway has developed. Through cooperation and the division of labor, both are able to accomplish more than they could on their own. The second castaway offers to work by catching fish with the first castaway's fishing rod in return for supplying him with some of the fish he catches. This frees up more time for the first castaway to develop other skills and projects. Being able to use the fishing rod means that the second castaway does not have to spend all his time looking for food and can therefore accumulate other resources and develop tools and skills not presently available to the first castaway. The two can trade, each benefiting from the other's accumulation of capital and thereby increasing their ability to develop other tools and accumulate further resources that can then be traded. As this goes on, their standard of living becomes more developed and their means of procuring the necessities, and even perhaps in time, some of the luxuries of life becomes increasingly capital-intensive. Eventually, they develop a standard of living that is vastly superior to that endured by the original castaway when he was first washed ashore. This higher standard of living is only made possible through the accumulation and productive use of capital, material resources, 
such as raw materials, tools, and semi-manufactured goods to facilitate further production, leading to a greater stock of material resources, a higher standard of living, and the possibility of further capitalization and progress. This process of capitalization is also greatly enhanced by the division and specialization of labor. The existence of capital and the process of capitalization is a basic fact of human life. Civilization is impossible without it. Men would simply die unless they were prepared to capitalize themselves to some degree. Productive work is essential to human life, and this is true psychologically no less than physically. The idea of an idyllic society where men have all their needs and desires provided for them without the necessity of work and where play is all that occupies their time is a denial of the role assigned to man in the created order by God. It has never existed and was not a feature of man's life in the Garden of Eden prior to his fall into sin and, moreover, never will. Societies that rely on only a minimal amount of capitalization are backward cultures characterized by subsistence living. If society is to have a high standard of living, it must pursue the process of capitalization. In this sense, all societies are capitalist to some degree, even socialist and Marxist societies, since they rely on the use of capital to further economic and social development. The term capitalism, however, has been used to describe an economy based on the private ownership of capital or the means of production, though this does also involve a certain philosophy of life or worldview based on the virtues of honesty, thrift and hard work in a free society, abiding by the rule of law with a limited civil government. As I argue elsewhere in this book, such an organisation of economic, social and political life is far more able to benefit society materially and socially. Socialist and communist societies, where capital is owned by the state in the name of the people, have a tendency to decapitalization rather than capitalization, since the human factors necessary to generate economic progress are distrusted, discouraged and even outlawed and the mechanisms essential for the smooth transmission of the information necessary to make capitalization possible are obstructed and impaired by state decrees and manipulation of the economy. Capital is thus the stock of material resources at the disposal of an individual or society that is used to produce goods and satisfy wants. Economists distinguish between various technical uses of the term capital, however. Basically, Capital can be divided into two kinds, fixed capital and working or circulating capital. Fixed capital consists of resources whose form does not change essentially through use, such as factories, buildings, machinery and equipment used in the manufacture of goods. Working or circulating capital consists of goods that are in the process of being manufactured, for example, stocks of raw materials, semi-finished goods, and finished goods stocked by manufacturers, wholesalers and retailers. A third category, specific capital, refers to goods and resources that can only be used for the purpose for which they were originally designed. The development of a highly capitalised economy and enjoyment of the high standard of living associated with it, such as exists in modern Western societies, requires a high level of saving, that is, postponement of the enjoyment of the profits of one's labour, and the investment of these profits in capital. It is such investment that facilitates greater productivity, which in turn leads to higher standard of living. 
A highly capitalized economy is characterized, therefore, by investment, whereas a highly uncapitalized or decapitalized economy is characterized by the immediate consumption of profits. Obviously, total postponement of the enjoyment of the fruits of one's labor is not possible, since a certain amount of consumption is necessary for life to continue. Likewise, no society totally consumes the products of its labor immediately. But to the extent to which saving and investment are prioritized over immediate consumption will determine the level of capitalization and hence the level of economic progress and general standards of living enjoyed by a society. It is the process of saving that provides the resources necessary for investment in capital. In a society with a highly developed monetary system, savings will be accumulated and measured in the economy's medium of exchange. Money can be lent out at interest to those wishing to obtain funds to purchase capital. Consequently, the availability of capital in a highly developed society is linked to the financial sectors of the economy. This has led to various investment and money-related uses of the term capital. Long-term capital is a term used to denote money invested in securities and bonds, that is, interest-bearing financial claims, and in shares in companies. These are long- and medium-dated investments. The market for such investments is called the capital market and consists in institutions such as the joint stock and merchant banks, issuing houses, the stock exchange, building societies and insurance companies. The capital market is the market for long- and medium-term loans. Short-term capital denotes money invested in short-dated bills of exchange, treasury bills and repos. The market for these investments is called the money market. The institutions comprising the money market are the settlement banks and other financial institutions, such as building societies and securities firms that deal in short-dated bills of exchange and repos, the discount market, accepting houses and bullion and foreign exchange markets. The money market, therefore, is the market for short-term loans. Section 8. Interest The possession of a good today is of more value than the possession of that same good at a later date, other things being equal, for example, provided demand remains constant. Given the choice of owning a scarce resource today and owning that same resource in a year's time, one would choose to receive it today, since it can either be consumed to gratify one's immediate wants or put to productive use in order to create wealth that will gratify one's wants. It is therefore more valuable now than at a future date. The ratio between the value one places on the gratification of a want today and the value one places on the gratification of that same want at a future date constitutes originary interest. Time is thus an important factor in economic calculation. In a sense, time is an economic good since it is a scarce resource for mankind. This preference for the possession of a good now rather than at a future date is called time preference. The time factor is essential to a proper understanding of interest. Just as the possession of a good is more valuable now than in the future, so also the possession of a sum of money is more valuable now than in the future, and the difference between its value now and at some future date constitutes interest. One's time preference determines the rate of interest one is willing to pay for the use of that sum now rather than later. If an individual sets a high premium on the future, if he is concerned about 
providing and planning for his future, rather than consuming his resources in order to gratify his immediate wants, he will demand less interest for deferring the gratification of his wants than the one who sets a high priority on the immediate gratification of his wants. Why? Because it takes less to induce him to wait for the enjoyment of his resources. He does not set such a high premium on the gratification of his wants. Now, he values the interest that can be gained at a future date from loaning out his funds more than the immediate gratification of his wants. He is not so consumption-oriented and is prepared, therefore, to forego the use of his funds on the gratification of his immediate wants in order to gain an advantage in the future. He is also less likely to borrow at high interest rates in order to gratify his immediate wants. This helps to reduce the rate of interest, stimulate entrepreneurial activity and facilitate the creation of wealth. It is exactly the reverse for the one who values the immediate gratification of his wants more than the advantage to be gained by foregoing present consumption and lending his funds out at interest. He is not so concerned about building for the future. He wants his cake now. It will take a higher rate of interest, therefore, to induce him to forego the consumption of his resources now. He will also be prepared to pay a higher rate of interest for loans in order to gratify his immediate wants, which will help to push up the cost of borrowing. This, then, has a knock-on effect in industry. Since the cost of borrowing is high, productivity and the creation of wealth will be less advanced. Obviously, these are pure types, and no human being or society completely embodies the one or the other. All need to engage in immediate consumption to some extent, and all need to rationalise consumption in order to plan for the future, to some extent. But one's time preference, the premium one sets on present consumption, as against the growth of one's capital over time in the form of interest, determines the degree to which resources can be released for productive use and the further creation of wealth. Societies in which there is a consensus that sets a high priority on the future, that is, societies that are production-oriented rather than consumption-oriented, will be wealthier societies. There will be more funds available at lower interest rates, and this will facilitate greater capitalization and productivity, and hence economic growth and social amelioration. It has been claimed that this is exactly what happened after the Reformation, especially in the Netherlands, but also generally among the Protestant nations. The Protestant faith produced a future-oriented worldview. The subjection of men's lives and minds to the Christian religion brought about a change in outlook that led to a significant reduction in interest rates. This facilitated greater trade and commerce and led to economic growth. Belief in the legitimacy of biblical concepts such as the cultural mandate, the command to have dominion over the earth, the legitimacy of wealth and capital accumulation, all of which, as we shall see in the following chapter, are to be found in the Protestant, and particularly the Puritan, worldview, led to a transformation of the way men perceived their calling in this life, and thus how they lived in the world. The Christian faith began to affect the everyday life of society. The result was a gradual transformation of society from feudalism to capitalism. The Christian faith, therefore, realigns men's priorities and gives them a perspective on life, a worldview, that enables them to use the world and its resources properly and productively according to God's law, thereby facilitating the creation of wealth, without which it would not be possible, and indeed 
has not been possible historically to provide better health care to those in need, better conditions and standards of living, which are essential for the eradication of disease, better education, better food production, better transportation, communication, etc. All this has occurred in the context of a Christian culture to a degree that has been historically unique. This is because the eradication of poverty and suffering is both a promise and a duty for Christian nations. Deuteronomy 15 verse 4, Luke 4 verses 18 and 19, and the pursuit of economic growth and social amelioration by legitimate means, both encouraged and blessed by our merciful God. Psalm 37, 27. Section 9. Inflation. Inflation is an increase in the money supply. By money supply, I mean the quantity of money in circulation. Deflation is a decrease in the money supply. Inflation is not a rise in prices, nor is deflation a fall in prices, though significant fluctuations in the supply of money usually do lead to fluctuations in prices generally. It is essential to have a proper grasp of the true nature of inflation if one is to understand the behaviour of modern Western economies. Control of the money supply in modern Western nations and it is used as a means of manipulating the economy in accordance with government policy. A government's performance in handling the economy is deemed to be the most important factor in its appeal to the electorate. If the, quote, feel-good factor, unquote, is not sufficiently felt by the population, the government's prospects of re-election are usually considered poor. Even fundamental issues of justice are considered secondary to this issue in the modern hedonistic societies of the West. Inflation leads to a rise in the aggregate level of prices, other things being equal. This is because the value of money, like that of any other commodity, is subject to supply and demand. This is what happens. If the money supply is increased while productivity remains stable, a situation develops in which there is more money chasing the same supply of goods. Prices rise, therefore, until all the available money is used to purchase all the available goods. The reverse happens in deflation. If the money supply is reduced, there is less money chasing the same supply of goods. Prices fall until all the available goods are sold for all the available money. When the money supply is increased, therefore, whether by printing fiat money or creating bank money or by an increased inflow of gold for use as currency in hard money economies, wealth is not hereby created. Inflation merely leads to a situation in which the same amount of wealth is represented by a greater supply of money. The value of the monetary unit falls, therefore. It is true, of course, that if everyone were to receive a share of the newly created money equal to the percentage of the total supply that he previously held, the inflation would not affect his relative wealth, although it by no means follows in such a case that the exchange value of money would decrease in direct proportion to the increase in the money supply. Practically, however, it would be impossible to maintain such proportionality in an inflationary economy. Inflation has an inherently redistributive effect on the economy. Since inflation creates a situation in which the total wealth in the economy is represented by a greater supply of money, those who receive the newly created money benefit at the expense of the rest of society. They receive wealth in the form of purchasing power that they previously did not have. Those who do not receive any of the new money 
have to stand a reduction in the purchasing power of the money they hold, and consequently, a decrease in real wealth. The effect of inflation, therefore, is to redistribute the wealth that was represented by the previous stock of money. This effect is usually much more severe when inflation is caused by the fraudulent creation of money by the political authorities rather than by processes such as the mining of precious metals for use as currency in hard money economies. However, unlike inflation caused by increases in the supply of specie in hard money economies, the inflationary effects of which are usually minimal, the manipulation of the volume and value of money by the political authorities, no matter how well-meaning and fair the government may claim its monetary policies are, is a form of theft and forbidden by the Eighth Commandment. Why such government-controlled inflation should be considered immoral will be discussed in detail in Chapter 4. Inflation, per se, is not immoral, therefore. Whether inflation is morally acceptable in terms of Christian ethics will depend on how the inflation is created. The mining of gold and silver for use as currency in hard-money economies, for example, is not morally repugnant to the Christian faith. Inflation produced by such processes, no matter how unwelcome its effects on the economy might be considered by some, cannot be classed as fraud and therefore immoral. On the whole, however, such inflation tends not to have unwelcome effects in hard-money economies. One can buy today with an ounce of gold roughly what one could buy with an ounce of gold 200 years ago. Although the price of gold fluctuates considerably over the short term, it has been remarkably stable over the long term. The effects of inflation caused by the mining of precious metals for use as currency in hard money economies, therefore, would tend towards the creation of long-term price stability. Whereas, without such inflation, there would be a slow reduction in the aggregate level of prices over the long term, other things being equal. However, this is largely a hypothetical scenario, since, historically, European rulers have constantly debased their coinage over the long term, which has, of course, resulted in a continual rise in the aggregate level of prices throughout much of our history. Government-generated inflation, based on the issue of fiat currency, and inflation caused by debasement of the coinage and fractional reserve banking practices, are an entirely different matter. However, such inflation is immoral, since it is fraudulent in principle. It also has much more serious and damaging effects in the economy, since where rulers resort to such practices, they usually do so with little moderation. By contrast, increases in the supply of precious metals for use as currency have usually been relatively moderate. Debasement of currency, issue of fiat money and fractional reserve banking have provided a potentially limitless source of revenue for our rulers, few of whom have shown themselves ready to resist the temptation to exploit such immoral practices. It is these fraudulent practices, that is, debasement of currency, issue of fiat money and fractional reserve banking, perpetrated by governments and government-licensed institutions that constitute the engine of inflation in modern Western society, and to which attention will be drawn in this book as being fundamentally immoral and therefore necessitating political and economic reform if our economic way of life is to conform to the ethical principles of the Christian religion. This explanation of the effect of inflation on prices is usually referred to as the quantity theory of money. However, we must distinguish between a strict mechanical quantity theory of money 
and a general quantity theory of money. The strict theory assumes that, other things being equal, any variation in the quantity of money will lead to an inversely proportionate variation in the exchange value of the monetary unit. In other words, it assumes that there is a strict proportional relation between the supply of money and the level of prices. If the supply of money is doubled, therefore, it is assumed that prices will double. But this is not necessarily so. There are a number of arguments that can and have been raised against this theory, some of which are based on misconceptions of the theory itself, coupled with an inadequate understanding of the economic realities on which it rests. Nevertheless, there are legitimate criticisms of the theory, usually to be found among those who have defined and developed the theory more correctly. The basic problem with this strict formulation of the theory is that it fails to take account of the fact that economics deals primarily not with mathematical models that operate according to fixed laws, but with individuals who make subjective evaluations of their economic situation and the goods and services they wish to exchange in the market. All kinds of considerations affect one's assessment of the value of a good, including the exchange value of money. Higher prices may, and often do, affect one's economic priorities. The fact that an individual has received an increase in income commensurate with the level of inflation, increase in money supply, does not mean that he will be prepared to pay a proportionately higher price for a particular good that he has been accustomed to buy. Inflation affects more than the relation between the supply of money and the level of prices. It affects the demand for goods also, and this leads to a change in buying patterns. It may also affect an individual's time preference. For example, the prospect of a sustained period of inflation that would wipe out a person's savings might induce him to stop saving and start consuming his capital or even begin borrowing in order to gain some advantage from inflation. If this were to happen on a significant scale, the demand for certain goods goods and assets that will keep their value over the long term, would increase, while the demand for others, for example, investments and financial services linked to saving, would decrease. Furthermore, if enough people stop saving and start spending their savings in order to avoid the devaluation of savings that inflation produces, or even start borrowing more in order to take advantage of an inflationary boom, prices generally may rise faster than inflation, that is, expansion of the money supply. Economists call this phenomenon an increase in the velocity of circulation of money. Inflation affects a great many variables within the economy that fluctuate according to individual, subjective assessments of priorities in changed economic conditions. The price of all goods will not rise proportionately, therefore. Some may not rise at all, and others may rise far in excess of the level of inflation. For example, while the growth in the money supply, M4, for the year ending April 1988, was 16.9%. This is the official Bank of England figure. The price of housing in London, and then later throughout the country, rose far in excess of this. At the same time, the prices of many other goods, notably those that the government includes in the retail price index, did not rise nearly as much. Even if everyone were to receive a share of the newly created money, commensurate with the percentage of the total supply that he previously held, The fact that his income had risen proportionately with inflation, and therefore that his relative wealth had been unaffected, does not mean that the exchange value of money would fall in exact proportion to the level of inflation. The increase in the money supply would still, most likely, lead to a significant change in the conditions of demand, 
This would affect buying habits, and there would, consequently, be a disproportionate rise in the prices of individual goods. In other words, there would not be a uniform rise in prices, and the new state of equilibrium would embrace far more than a general rise in prices. The overall configuration of market conditions would be different. This new situation would certainly be reflected in the prices of goods and services offered for sale in the market, but it would be impossible to predict precisely how and to what extent the price level would be affected. That would demand an exhaustive knowledge of each individual's physical resources, as well as its economic priorities, how they changed over time and in relation to inflation, and what new considerations would determine his future economic priorities, since all these factors are the source of change buying patterns. In other words, it would require exhaustive knowledge of both the distribution of wealth throughout the economy and the state of mind of every individual in the economy and how his state of mind affected the use of his wealth. It is not even possible for men to understand their own minds much of the time, and when asked for a reason, people often do not know themselves why they have acted in a certain way. How then could a central authority determine to what extent inflation would affect prices according to a crude and simplistic mathematical model? However, in criticising this strict formulation of the quantity theory, we must not throw the baby out with the bathwater. As a general theory explaining an inescapable fact of life, it holds good. Although there is no fixed ratio between the money supply and price levels, increases in the supply of money generally lead to increases in the aggregate level of prices, other things being equal, not because there is any mechanical relation between the two, but because individuals compete against each other in the market to obtain economic goods, and any increase in their purchasing power will lead them to bid up the price of goods offered for sale. How much they will be prepared to bid up the prices of individual goods, however, will depend not merely on their increased purchasing power, but also on the extent to which this increased purchasing power has affected the balance between other subjective economic considerations. Inflation, therefore, leads to an overall alteration in market conditions that is reflected in, among other things, the price of goods and services offered for sale. Assuming that all the money circulating in the economy will be used to purchase all the available goods, an increase in the money supply will lead to an aggregate increase in the level of prices, other things being equal. But not all goods will rise proportionately. Some prices may rise more than others, some may not rise at all, and some prices may even fall. To summarise, we can illustrate this general theory by the following examples. A. In a growing economy with a stable money supply, prices will steadily fall, other things being equal, since money is needed to finance the production and purchase of new products and services, and this must necessarily come from the existing stock. Since the same supply of money is chasing a greater supply of goods and services, prices generally must fall. B. In a growing economy with a level of inflation that is proportionate to the increase in productivity, prices generally will remain stable, other things being equal. The supply of money is increased in line with the demand for money. In this situation, wealth is being distributed to those who receive the new money, irrespective of the fact that prices are stable. This is what monetarists aim for, but what is theoretically desirable is not always practically attainable, as the Thatcher government discovered in the 1980s. It is extremely difficult to create this kind of situation because of the factors mentioned above 
regarding the subjective and unpredictable nature of economic activity. C. In a growing economy with a level of inflation in excess of increased productivity, prices will rise generally, other things being equal. Since the supply of money has increased over demand for money, prices will rise until a new equilibrium has been established. Obviously, this also constitutes the redistribution of wealth to those who receive the new money. This expansion of the general quantity theory of money is necessarily simplistic. Its simplicity, however, does not undermine its validity. Section 10. Economic and Legal Ownership The free market economy, or capitalism, is based on the private ownership of the means of production. It is of the utmost importance, however, that we make a distinction between the concepts of economic ownership and legal ownership. Economic ownership consists of the ability to use and control an economic good, whether a consumption good or a production good. Legal ownership consists of a title to a good, which should, but does not always, guarantee the right to use and control that good. Capitalism is based on the private ownership, both legal and economic, of the means of production. Under a capitalist system of economic organisation, those who own property legally have the right to dispose of their property as they think fit. If an individual has legal ownership of property, but the state, or the mafia, or anyone else, makes it impossible for him to use that property as he sees fit, by means of coercion, by taxing particular uses of the property in order to discourage certain kinds of economic activity, or by any other means, he does not have economic ownership of the property. He owns it in name only. The state, or whoever controls how he uses it, has economic ownership. For example, if I have a legally owned plant for producing certain goods, but the state instructs me to use this plant in a particular way, for example, to pay a certain wage, to employ a certain kind of person, to sell products at a certain price, etc. In other words, if it controls my use or part of my use of the plant, it usurps my power to dispose of my property as I see fit. It has effectively appropriated economic ownership of my plant. I do not own it in the capitalist sense. It is no longer private ownership of the means of production. Obviously, if it is nationalised, I own it, neither economically nor legally. Capitalism, however, maintains the right of private ownership, both legal and economic, of the means of production. A society that does not maintain this right of private economic ownership, as well as legal ownership, cannot properly be described as capitalist. Marxism and all other forms of communism maintain the right of state ownership of the means of production, both legally and economically. Under fascism, the individual has the right of legal ownership, but not economic ownership. Economic ownership in a fascist system is under the control of the state. Fascism is thus in no sense a capitalist phenomenon. It is vitally important that this point should be understood if one is to have a proper grasp of the nature of the modern state-planned economy. By leaving legal ownership in the hands of private citizens while acquiring economic ownership for itself, a fascist state gives the impression to those outside that it is an economic order based on private ownership of the means of production, that is, that it is capitalist. But this is not so. F.A. Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, published in 1944, was written in order to expose this fallacy. Unfortunately, 
The common misunderstanding of the true nature of fascism has persisted. It needs to be stressed, therefore, that fascism is a form of socialism. Indeed, Hitler's version of fascism was called National Socialism and was the policy of the German National Socialist Labour Party. It must be understood, therefore, that the term, quote, right-wing, end quote, which is today used to mean, quote, fascist, end quote, and, quote, capitalist, end quote, to some extent, entirely fails to convey the true nature of the capitalist mode of production and the kind of society it presupposes and helps to maintain. Capitalism is not a right-wing phenomenon, since it refers to the organisation of the means of production under a system that has nothing in common with fascism. Fascism is a form of socialism,